Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 72. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a very special guest, professional juggling coach, Richard Kinnison. Before we talk to Richard, though, let's thank our sponsors. In fact, we're only going to thank one sponsor in this podcast because it's the most important sponsor I got, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. This great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. A big congratulations to David Kane for a fabulous festival in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And hope to see you all next year in El Paso, Texas. Now, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Richard Kinnison. Please welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 72, my very special guest and good friend, juggling coach, Mr. Richard Kennison. Hi, Richard. Hey, Dan. How are you? Great. It was a pleasure seeing you at last uh, this year's IJA, and we'll get you your amazing performance there with all your students. Uh, you had some great jugglers you've coached in the past, but there's one juggler who I, I only recently heard about, and I want to start by asking you about him. Maybe you could tell me about how what kind of amazing juggler he was. Who was Fletcher Valentine? Oh, my. Uh, wow. Uh, Fletcher Valentine was a comedy juggler. He was pretty good, really, to tell you the truth, in a regional kind of way. Yeah, actually, that was my stage name, Fletcher Valentine. Valentine came from uh, Valentine's, uh, what's that book? Uh, oh, Lord Valentine's Castle. That's where the Valentine came, came from, yep. I gave myself a different name. Uh, I'm not even sure why I'm thinking about it now. But I was a comedy juggler, probably nowhere near as funny as you. I worked for a restaurant called Abra K. Dabra. Abracadabra was owned by Kmart. There were going to be 200 of these entertainment restaurants. I worked in the first two, the only two that existed, for three years. So I did most of my Fletcher Valentine at that restaurant. So I would do up uh, up to as many five shows a day. Now, when you coach a student, do you encourage them to have a stage name? And how important do you think a stage name is for success as a juggling performer? I sort of go both ways on this one. Um, I do think a good name is a good name. But overall, I think your name, whatever it is, is probably workable. I did coach a girl for quite some time, and her name is Brindley Schmuck. And I always said, well, we got to change your last name. And her middle name is Rose, so she could be Brindley Rose, which would be beautiful. But I haven't thought about that after the fact. I think there's something unique about Brindley Schmuck. Schmuck, and I think that could be okay. Now, do you think the name should sort of go along with the style? Like you think Brindley Schmuck, if she was a comedy juggler or more of a clown? Yeah would work well, but if she tried to present an elegant performance, it might be counterproductive. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, yep. So let's talk about your transition between a professional juggler because you're well known as a juggling coach. So at a certain point, you decided to put your own career aside to coach other jugglers. Was there something about being a professional juggler that you left you dissatisfied or you're just more interested in coaching others? Well, uh, when I learned to juggle, I taught like 20 people the next day and then 20 people the day after that. I'm a teacher inside out, to tell you the truth. So even when I was a professional juggler, I really still really enjoyed teaching and coaching other acts. And not just juggling acts. I coached the magic act. And I just like, it's that puzzle. And you, it's like, how are they going to come out? And what's the beginning and middle and end going to be? And I just find that very interesting and very satisfying. So I always enjoyed that part, and I made a conscious decision that I was going to try to make a full-time living as a juggling coach. <laughs> now, do you know anybody else who's, well, there's uh, the Russian guy, which is named Yuri Posner. Yeah. Do you know anybody else in the States who's doing a full-time living as a coach? Well, uh, 
the director of uh, the Jughead, Paul, he's a full-time director of a, of a program, but I don't know anybody else doing full-time coaching. Yeah, it's a hard road. <laughs> Let me ask you a question since you mentioned the Jugheads. What, what do you feel about the, the judging this year? Because they competed in the teams and they came in third place and second place were the plate spinners from China. Did you think that yeah. was, the, did you agree with that decision? I did not agree with that decision. I thought the Jughead should have come in front of them. I know the pow factor of the plate spinners are pretty high, but I think the risk factor of the plate spinners is pretty low. And so I don't think they should have come in second. As a category I wish had more prominence in the judging is exactly what you mentioned, risk factor, because that's so important. I think uh, juggling we're putting multiple items in the air and we should be rewarded for that. And when you're just passing one plate each person, I just don't see it in the equivalent of passing 11 rings. Well, you can't just count drops without counting risk factor as well, because those two things have to work together. Yes. Let's talk about how juggling entered your life. Did you learn quite early or what age did you actually see juggling and become interested in it? Well, I started life at seven years old as a magician. <laughs> And I did that for quite some time. I have some really good friends who are professional magicians still today. I was a tennis player. I, I know I don't look at it looks like it today, but I'm, I was quite athletic. And um, my best friend and I were uh, tennis partners, double partners. And we were waiting for the courts one day. And um, there was a whole group of ladies. And I solely took out three tennis balls and said this to my friend, wouldn't it be cool if you could juggle? And the whole idea in my head was I would impress those girls. Mm -hmm. Took some time to figure out uh, a hard life lesson that is girls are not interested in juggling. But I took these three tennis balls and just immediately did a shower pattern really quite well. And then I handed them to my friend, Jeff, and he also did a shower pattern just really quite well. And for, this is embarrassing now, for about three months, we juggled up a storm every day became known as the juggling guys and all we did was a shower pattern and i think we share this dan you and i i saw on the midnight special there was a juggler named bobby sandler mm -hmm. and he was in cascade and doing all these other moves and i just totally blew our brains out but there was some other way to juggle than a shower pattern and then we spent a whole summer in my friend's backyard teaching ourselves this is before the internet of course and before uh, too many accessible books and things like that. And we just taught ourselves and we were very regimented about it and very serious. And we became good jugglers. And, and then we had a, a team act and we discovered we didn't have to work McDonald's. We could work once a weekend in a show and make way more money. And we did that for quite some time. Now, how important do you think athletic performances to juggling? Do you encourage your students to also have some sort of athletic training to go in addition to their juggling practice? Well, when they ask me what they should do, my answer is always they should, should take dance. And that's athletic. But yeah, dance is, you know, you're, you're standing on stage and the way you hold yourself and the way you just stand there. I can always tell someone, I can always tell when someone's had dance training or not. So yeah, dance is what I really recommend. I can remember my son, Book, and Tony, when they were pretty young, they took ballet together, which was kind of fun to watch through the parents' secret window because Tony's quite a bit shorter than my son, and they were the only two males in the class. It was just fun to watch. But my son has said, I've seen him say this, that taking that ballet class really changed a lot for him. 
And of course, you're talking about Tony Pezzo. He was one of your, your first students? He was an early student, yeah. He was in the same, the same Louis Juggling Club. I ran the same Louis Juggling Club for a couple of decades. What I mean by that is I had a key to the space, and I promised everyone in St. Louis that I would be there every Wednesday. And, and so some weeks there would be five of us, and some weeks there would be 25 of us. But Tony was an early student. I wish I could say I taught Tony to juggle. I did not. A friend of mine who's a tap dancer who taught all her tap dance girls to juggle taught Tony to juggle. But then she brought him to me, and then we, we, he became very interested in juggling. I can remember uh, Davenport, AIJ and Davenport, Tony wanted to compete in juniors, and I wouldn't let him. And I had to tell him that he was a big juggler in St. Louis, but he, was a, he, had, he didn't have the skill set to compete at the IJA. And uh, at the IJA that year, Tony sitting next to me turned white during juniors and, and said, like, oh, Mr. Tennyson, you were so correct. Uh, there's no way I could have competed. But one year later in um, Portland, put back in Venus. And then what year did he win? Did he win the next year? Uh, he won in 2011. So it was a few years after that. And that was a, a Christmas-themed act, am I right? Or Peanuts, I'm thinking? What, what was that act about? Yeah, his first act was what we call the Christmas tree act. Yeah. Right. The props run a Christmas tree, and it was sort of a Christmas theme. Yeah, he took second that year. Now, when you see a young juggler like a Tony Pezzo, are you immediately struck by their potential or is it sort of a combination of that they're a hard worker? I mean, can you just see someone and think that person's going to become a great juggler? Well, it's only happened a couple of times where I really, really that, but I do have a skill for sensing that, but really it's the people who are working hard and it's the people who really, really like juggling. Juggling's hard. Juggling's not easy. And to stand in the corner and, and to do what we call in the circus, to, to, uh, to eat, the, eat the bitter before you get the sweet. A lot of people can't do that. But Tony would do it for a long time. You know, my number one student as far as being a worker is Delaney. Delaney juggles more than any human on the planet every day. I promise you she does. I can remember when I met Delaney, it occurred to me the second day I met her, I asked her, I'm like, you really like juggling? And she looked at me like like everybody in the gym is at the IGA. Of course, they, they love juggling. And I'm like, no, you really, really like it. And she's like, yeah, I really have to do this. And that was like the hairs in my arms stood up. I'm like, okay, this girl is a hard worker and, and really likes it. And that's a hard thing. That's, that's hard to like juggling. And do you think there's a limit where you should only practice so much per day? Do you think there's a point where that obsession becomes counterproductive? Well, Delaney... I don't think we'd be upset when I tell you this. Yes, we, we tell her many, many times, you need to take at least one day off a week. And she rarely takes that one day off a week. Yeah, as you get older, you need to mitigate chronic wear on your body, and especially at the level she juggles. She's not just doodling in the gym. She is a machine, and she's doing some hard, 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 repetitive, long-time work. I think she's really, really good because of that. I think the time she put in is incredible. She hit her, you know, that whatever that book is, she hit her 10,000 hours early in her career and way surpassed that. So, yeah, I, there's no doubt hard work pays off. Smart hard work pays off. Yeah, Delaney's just the hardest worker and, and dedicated and committed to juggling than anybody I know. And that's great from a juggling coach. You can leverage the daylight out of that. But at a certain point, she does need to back off. I think when she graduates next year from Circadian, and gets a, gets a job. I think when she's in an actual show and things, she will maybe lay off a little bit of how hard she works. 
Now, do most of your students then want to go on to professional careers like a, Delay, a Delaney Bayless? Is she thinking about pursuing juggling as a professional career? Yeah, Delaney and Zach are both at Circadium, Zach McAllister. And the whole idea is they're going to circus school so they will be ready to go get a contract afterwards. Yeah, they're serious. Well, let's talk about this year's IJ because both of those competed. Zach and Delaney, they also competed as a team. But I don't know if people also realize you also had the juniors winner. So this year for Richard Kennison was a clean sweep of all three major categories. And that's incredible. That just could not happen, and it did. So, yeah, I'm so happy for all those people because they all did work really hard. And for some of that, that was years' goals. I mean, Christopher Hauser, this is, that was his fourth attempt at juniors. And the only reason he got to do it again this year is because the IGA was early this year because his birthday was two days after competition, so he got to try one more time. So that was great for him. Delaney, you know, we have had a long-term goal for her, and that is – she won juniors in Quebec City, and then she just won teams with Zach. And then she's coming back, unless the contract gets in with next year after she graduates, to attempt to win individuals. And then she'll be the only person to win all three of those. So that's been a long-term goal for like eight years that we would make happen where she could get all three. Well, if she competes next year, that's going to be a, a difficult person. So I think one thing we look at in the competitions is that every year, it's different in that depending on the people competing, it's an easy year or a hard year. I think a year that Delaney Bayless is going to be competing, especially as she gets better and better, is going to be what I'm going to call a hard year for someone to beat her. What, what do you mean by her? Well, I think, you know, sometimes you, if you have a person like that, who's such a hard worker and such an excellent juggler, I think a lot of people sort of, they always see a front runner because sometimes it's kind of all bunched together, but sometimes there's someone who stands apart like, oh, if that person's in it, I mean, we can look back at Anthony Gatto. So like if Anthony Gatto was in it, a lot of people are thinking, well, I'm competing for second place. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that'd be a hard year for most people because I do believe, I mean, Delaney's act four next year is really kind of done, and it's a dance. It's dance with juggling. It's beautiful. And I think it will be difficult to beat. The bulk of that act is five clubs, and in, in my humble opinion, I think Delaney is one of the best five club jugglers in the world. Well, let's talk about uh, the difference between male and female jugglers. Do you think there is a difference? And do you, do you coach them differently? Or do you think that juggling is kind of a unisex activity? Well, I don't think there's a difference. I do think, obviously, the reason we even talk about the subject is that there's fewer females. And I will say that I think, you're going to get me in trouble here, but I, I think females are not so competitive. And so for them to make goals to compete is not as enticing as maybe it is for males. I guess that's a sweeping generalization, but, but Delaney is the most competitive person I've ever met, so <laughs> not a problem with her. And as far as competition, a lot of people think that I'm just a competition coach, and I have no illusions about the competition. For me, it's just a great big goal, and it's nice if you can make it work, but I don't have any, if you win the IGA, it doesn't mean anything except for what you make it mean. Just like getting a degree in college, you get a piece of paper, you have to go impress people and get a job and then do the job. I, I love competition. I think it breeds excellence. I really do. I know I've heard Jay Gilligan say that he would not be the juggler he is except for the IGA because every year he wanted to, to get better and share the new better with everybody. And that's really how I look at that. I coach a lot of jugglers who don't go to the IGA. 
Uh, I coach a lot of jugglers who aren't going to go down this road and be professionals, but it's very, the juggling is still very important for them and they want to get better. And in their high school age stuff, they get to do talent shows and stuff, but they're not going to, they're not going to become professional jugglers. Juggling is just a great activity outside of trying to become a professional or trying to compete. Now you've mentioned goals a few times. How important is goal setting? And when you work with a juggler for the first time or they're starting out with you, as a student, do you start by setting particular goals for them? I'm in a wonderful place where I don't work with everybody that asks me. And really that's part of the conversation is one of the, the things is, look, let's make a goal. And it could be many things, but I mean, it could be a goal that, you know, we're just going to improve your five clubs and here are the benchmarks we're going to look for as we go to know that we're both doing our jobs. And, um, but if you're just going to go into a gym and juggle, it's not going to get you anywhere per se. So yeah, I'm a big goal guy. I'm a big, big goal guy. Like, like, um, like Tony, I said, I wouldn't let him do Davenport, but right after Davenport, I was like, okay, well, let's make it a goal for next year that you can compete. And we did, you know, I coached a young gentleman named Andrew Kafer. He was the IGA this year. He did, he did the, um, individual props. You were, you were a coach, uh, you were a judge there. He was a tall, Paul, Paul Smiley guy. Yeah, very smooth. He had a very smooth style. He's a very smooth juggler. I've coached him for a number of years now. And so we made goals like he's going to be two years next year. But that was that goal was made like three years ago. Yeah, goals are very, very important. Like I said to him, that's why I brought his name up, is the day after the convention, I'm like, okay, we have 13, we have 12 months. We have so many things we got to get going on. And just time flies. <laughs> you know, this past Wednesday when I was coaching, I'm like, you know, I was wrong, Andrew. We only have 10 months because tapes we do in May, competitions in July. So, yeah, here we got to write down a bunch of stuff. I'm a big pencil paper guy. So we write down our goals and we write down month by month what benchmarks we're trying to hit to be prepared. One of my secrets to competing is, like, you can't compete. What I mean by that is you have to have such a good act that is clean and that is well-practiced and rehearsed so you're no longer competing. You're just sharing your joy, literally, in this beautiful act that you're proud of. And then we can, we can sort of control something that we can't, and that is the judging and the competition. When you see people who are real nervous and they're putting a trick in their act, hoping to hit it, the magic will happen during the competition. It never does. You have to be prepared. And the more prepared you are, the more you, the less you have to compete. So as much as I believe in competition, I also believe that we want to get on that stage and, and just share, you know, Zach and Delaney, although they were a little nervous, their team act was just really well done. It was very theatrical, and they just shared this beautiful story. It was received very well over there. Yeah, competing is a hard thing, so we try not to compete, even though it's competing. What kind of tips can you give us for controlling nerves? Because obviously juggling is a very delicate uh, situation, especially competing. Is there a particular advice you give to your students about controlling their nerves? Well, the number one advice I give is sort of I just said, and that is we're prepared and in rehearsal, we hit our tricks over and over and over again and over and over again. And we try to replicate when we practice. But then when we rehearse, you're running the act. You're in your costume, you have your music, you're going to run this thing straight through, you're going to deal with whatever happens. And when we can do that many, many times and it's very, very clean. Well, then people, then people are more relaxed. Christopher Hauser, who I've coached, used to be too nervous 
and he would drop uh, big tricks sometimes. And this year we worked really hard via distance, by the way. We worked really hard. His juggling got way better. But I really encourage him to think and plan on not dropping. You know, part of it is making that a goal. I think you should make a goal of no drops. Now, if you have one or two drops or three drops, that's okay. The act continues. It's all well. I'm not an advocate of saying, like, drops don't matter. We're juggling. Drops should matter. (laughs) They do matter. And, of course, that's a hard thing, but that is our goal. We're we're aiming for excellence. And as long as we're aiming in that direction, we're going to come near it anyway. And that's a great thing. One of the things I do, Dan, is especially younger kids I coach and juniors, oh, about three months out, I tell them, and I can't share this with you, but I can tell you the idea of it. I say, listen, when when, when we're behind that curtain and they're about to open a curtain on your performance in the competition, here's what I'm going to say to you. And I say to them right there, here's exactly what I'm going to say to you. And when I say to you, Dan, when I say these words to you behind that curtain, the effect is it's going to make you calm down and you're going to breathe easy and you're going to be confident and you're going to be very excited to perform. And then three months later, when we're behind that curtain, I say those words it really works. I have a friend who's a hypnotist, and I sort of took that off of him a little bit, but it really works. The first person I did that with was, was Ashley Ellis. I don't know if you remember Ashley. She's a baton twirler. Was she a baton twirler? Yeah, she uh, she competed for several years in a row, and she was a winner, if I'm right. She competed for two years and did not win, and then her family came to me and asked me if I would coach her act, and I thought I'd be delighted because she's really good. The challenge there was they had already sent their tape in. The act was already set. I couldn't change anything per se, but she came to St. Louis for 11 days, and we would work twice a day for three hours each time. And in the morning, we ran her act and really smoothed it out and really got it solid. And then in the afternoon, I taught her to juggle because although she could juggle, she was not a juggler. And so we, we worked on juggling in the afternoon, and she became a five-club juggler in 11 days. And so then when we put those two things together, we went up there. She's the first person I did this curtain talk to. And when I said it to her, she's like, Richard, you're right. I feel so good. And I went, okay, give it to him. And then the curtain opened, and then she performed almost a flawless act, and then she won gold. It was so exciting. Let me ask you a question. Is this what you say to them? Do you say, what would Dan Holzman do? <laughs> is that, is that it? <laughs> what I say. Now, right, right before we put our hands together and we go, one, two, three, ring dama. Yeah, the ring dama. I hope you don't say that because they're like, what? What's a ring dama? Uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about the difference between practicing and rehearsing. Now, those are two different, do you, do you think of those as two different terms? Are they the same thing? In your mind, what's the difference between practicing and rehearsing? Well, in the gym, there's learning. So we're working on new tricks. So that's like comes under the heading of practice, but but it's more a learning stage. Like, hey, we need to up your act, so we're going to learn these three new patterns or tricks or whatever. And so we work on those, and we use pyramids like everybody does, and we work, work, and then we practice the act where we can stop, and we can say, okay, here, blah, 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 this is not working or whatever. But eventually we have an act, and then we rehearse. And rehearse is where you're in a full costume, you're wearing the shoes you're going to wear, and you have to run the act straight through. You can't stop. You have to deal with whatever happens, just like you're on stage. And we do all those things together on, on our way to a goal. Learning new tricks, of course, is very important. Upping your skill level is very important. I fully believe everybody should be better 
uh, in St. Louis, there was a juggling team. You probably knew them. Um, Gravity's Last Stand. Uh, three person act, yeah. Yeah, there was actually five of them at one time in that oh. act. And um, they were two brothers and Dave, David Fry and, or, and Bill Fry. Bill Fry. Bill Fry and Matt Gangapang and his brother. Anyway, and they would slap their hands together and they would say, We're Gravity's Last Stand and we're better than we have to be. And I really took that to heart. Like, these guys were better than they had to be for St. Louis, and they were really good. The first people I see juggling five balls in a, for a long time and actually had some control over it uh, in the 70s. And anyway, I always want my kids to uh, increase their vocabulary. The larger vocabulary they have, the more choices we have to create an act. So, yeah, we're always working on increasing that. I think my job as a coach, Dan, is taking you and your current skill set and making you look as good as you can look. By, by creation of an act, by a theme, by a premise, all those things. But that's what we really do is try to make everybody look as good as they can look with what they got, which, of course, is what everybody's doing. You're, you know, whatever level you're at, that's what you're doing. I think I'm pretty good at helping create acts that do that, that give everybody a chance to look as good as they can look. Now, you mentioned a term that you just kind of glossed over that maybe some of our listeners don't understand, but you mentioned pyramids. Can you kind of give us a, a clue of what that, I think I have a pretty good idea, can you tell us what the pyramid technique is as it approaches uh, learning new skills? Well, I do it a little different than everybody else, and I really call it a ladder. But, yeah, you're going to do 20 sets of a number and then 10 sets of a larger number and then five sets of a little bit larger number. And then one time at your real goal is, you know, 100 throws or a minute, whatever. That's something I do different, too. So, yeah, that's just the pyramid. It's just that. But I use time for a long time before I use numbers. I'm a big believer in stopwatches. So all my jugglers have to learn five balls. We'll use five balls. For example, you know, our goal is to get one minute. So every time they pick up five balls, they can go to a minute. And that is a long time at first. Long, long time to do it every time. But then my people, at one time, they have to run five for 15 minutes. And when you can do that, and they don't ever have to do 15 minutes again. But when you can get to three minutes, that's my real goal. Anytime I ask you to pick up those five and show me three minutes, when you can do that, now you're beginning to really be a juggler and master juggling. Yeah, so I, I love time. I think there's something, uh, pressure, when I say, okay, three, two, one, go, and I click my stopwatch, there's some pressure attached to time for humans, and it works to leverage for jugglers to try to get to that minute. Last year, I went to a Gandini audition. Sean Gandini is auditioning for this opera show that's going to be in Philly this fall. And I told Andrew, who I was coaching, although he was too young to get the job, Sean allowed him to come and get the experience. And when they did their, he said, okay, let's, Sean said, let's pick up five balls and let's juggle them for, oh, 70 throws. And Andrew and I were both shocked because 70 throws is about 21 seconds. And I had told Andrew, get ready. We should be ready to go for five. <laughs> but Andrew did a perfect 70 throws. And Sean afterwards like, your kid is the best five ball juggler in the room. And there are some good jugglers in that room. But I'm a, I use fives for everything. I think five is the first number where you really are stepping into a more professional realm of juggling. And I think five is always hard, hard enough that you can never just, I don't know, be asleep when you're doing it. But it's a great way to work on seven. It's a great, using tight swaps, great way to work on higher numbers as your standard pattern of five. 
I love five balls. I think five balls is the most beautiful juggling. I think it's more beautiful than seven and nine. I think the side swaps you can do with it, if you look at Matan doing incredible, incredible things with five objects. Yeah, I love five. Now you're a little old school like me. So when people started using side swaps, was that something you embraced quite quickly or did you kind of resist it? And what part, do, uh, what part does side swaps play in your coaching? I swaps uh, in 1991 in the St. Louis IJA Convention Festival. I think it might have been the very first workshop ever given at a festival on side swaps in 1991. And uh, I am a math guy. I love math. I love numbers. And I got it right away. It took me a couple of years to really get it. But what's great about side swaps for me is you can work on higher numbers with lower numbers. So if I do a, my first entry for seven is a seven, five, seven, five, one. What I like about that is it's just a five ball pattern on one side. And then the other side does all the tricks. The other side throws a higher crossing throw, which is a seven. And then another higher crossing throw, which is a seven. And then a zipper you hand the ball across. And it's an easy way to do side swaps. It's not that hard of a number. But what you can do, what you should do, is focus on isolating the trick of seven. And that's what I mean by that is you're going to aim that throw for the seven. You're not going to sling it high and try to shuffle everything back in. You're actually going to try to aim it, throw it perfectly, and when it falls in, then it just falls in like it was a five. That's, that's why I like side swaps. You can do higher numbers with lower numbers. And the Russian method is to throw one ball high and practice that. And so side swaps allow sort of more American way where you're still getting the satisfaction of doing a whole pattern with the whole number of options you're doing, but you isolate by aiming that throw. And look, if, if you know my patterns, well, my goal for five is a high, high pattern, much higher than most Americans want to embrace. It's a tall, thin pattern. So my fives are really high. My fives are the height of most people's sevens. Yeah, I believe in height. Embrace height is my slogan. Embrace height. Height is the answer. Height gives you time to make early small corrections instead of late big ones. So I, I mean, all these people are like, yeah, but look, I can do five. I can do it this high. And it's too low. And they can do it as long as everything is perfect. But the moment they have an errant throw, they have no time for correction. It's over. When you, throw, when you throw tall and thin, you actually have time for correction. And it's a beautiful, epic-looking pattern anyway. I just love high throws. I'm totally influenced by the Russians. They throw really high. Although, let's, we can talk about Anthony Gatto. When I was a young juggler, when I was a performing juggler, you know, I think back then, Dan, we had the tendency at the IJ to, like, worship uh, instead of try. So we all bow to Anthony. But if you look at Anthony, Anthony throws really high. Well, we didn't do that. We would try to learn our five really low because that's where our brain comfort zone is. But we couldn't do it. We're like, oh, we can't do it. Anthony, he's, he's the one. He's the, cho the golden child. <laughs> but, but, but I think kids today don't do that. They go, oh, there's somebody doing it. I'm going to throw really high, too, and see what I can do. And that's one of the reasons I think we have so many great young jugglers is they just go for it. They throw high. And for some reason, in the early 80s, we just all bowed. We did not take the information that was in front of us and really use it. Well, he was such a special case. And this idea that he started so young and he had a professional coach from a very young age, because very few jugglers have had a professional coach, especially one being their father who could start you out at five. So he yep. did seem kind of have this sort of unnatural edge and this ability that when you see someone who's nine, he's already better than you and you're like a grown person. It's difficult not to put that person on a pedestal. 
Oh, yeah, easily. Oh, I was in the people bowing. I, I really was. But in 1991, I cornered Nick, Nick and I, I said, balance is the key, right, Nick? And he's like, how do you know that? Uh, but that's a big part of my regiment, too, is all my jugglers are, have to balance. So at, at Circadian, even, the first thing they do every morning is there's a number of sticks or different lengths, and they have to balance them, and they actually get recorded, and you're trying to get down to the there's 17 sticks, and you're trying to get to the smallest one, number 17. But people who learn to balance, I, I think of Tom Wallace. When, when, when I made Tom balance a stick, there's nothing fun about balancing a stick. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to have a correlation that's immediately understandable. But all the great jugglers are great balancers. And the same thing there, you have to balance. Tom had, was one of the people who had to balance a 48-inch stick for 15 minutes. And then we checked that off. The secret is get a stick and start balancing it, everybody. I think another big difference is uh, a lot of people are into spin control now, which is something that, like if someone back in our day did five club singles, it was godlike because it was just something un unheard of. You did five clubs in doubles or maybe yep. in triples. But this idea about slowing down the spins and really being able to control the height versus the spin has also been a kind of a new advancement in the technique of juggling. You know, that's Luke Wilson. And, uh, but I remember uh, Jay Gilligan. I remember watching him in Chicago. He was pretty young. And he was throwing a club as high as he could and trying to have it spin as little as it would. And so it's been going on for quite some time. But, yeah, I think people like Zach McAllister and other people really understand that if you can control that, you are in charge. You're juggling. I can remember Andy Head doing four club singles and people freaking out. So, yeah. Now, what do you think about these Russian balls? I see that Zach uses the Russians. Is that something you suggest for your students? And what's the advantage of the Russian half-filled plastic ball versus, let's say, a, you know, obviously a silicon ball or just a regular bean bag? On stage, let me just say this real quick. This is a pet peeve of mine, so I'll get it out of the way. Okay. So when you're performing on stage, you should not be using bean bags. Uh, you should not be using little squishy bean bags. Uh, this year's competition, that girl that did the dance juggling was really uh -huh. good. She was using these terribly dark colored squishy bean bags everything else about her act was very professional but the ball itself is not and i really think it deteared the whole act well they didn't pick up the light well they kind of they were very hard to see they had no shine to them yeah they were dark red purple and they were so dark you, you couldn't see them yeah on stage i totally believe in a in a round shape it can be a bean bag if it's a, not a worn out bean bag as far as the Russians, I was late to that game, but a Russian ball really does, I think what happens if you try them for a little bit, you're like, these are terrible. But if you stay with them for a couple of weeks and you're like, oh, these are wonderful. The whole idea is that they act, they're a light ball that acts like a heavy ball. So that sand is pushing as it goes up and when it comes down, it's pushing down. And so it's reacting like a heavy ball, but it's light. So it doesn't wear you out. So many people use them and I sign off on them. I have, I have both. I have, I have students who use Russian balls. I have students who use sport called balls. Yeah, so both can work. Yeah, I guess I'm in that camp that tried them and was just like, I don't get it. But maybe I didn't do them long enough. Yeah, they sort of have a spiraling kind of turn at first when you first throw them in the air. And you're like, what, what's going on here? But if you stick with my son uses them, lots of, lots of people use them. Uh, but, you know, you can learn, you, you know, this, Dan. Like Zach McAllister in this little town in Texas, there's tape of this when he was pretty small. He learned up to seven balls using tennis balls. <laughs> right, unfilled tennis balls. Just a regular tennis ball. 
800 up to seven and and it's on tape as a young person there's there's actual video of it because he was in the full town there's nobody to tell him what to do and all he had was tennis balls so you can learn with almost anything you know but you definitely wouldn't want to perform with tennis balls and zach uses yeah zach uses russians very well let's talk about your son book kennison because he has a very unusual juggling style he's a very tall thin with seems like have long arms now, did you encourage him to become a juggler or is it something that he took on his own? You were like, I don't know, juggling's a hard profession. Was it, or it's something you actively sort of said, hey, juggling's the way to go and I hope you become a professional juggler. You know, I was part of this juggling community. So everywhere I went, my son went with me and everybody juggled. In fact, I can remember Book being kind of surprised that not everyone juggled in the world. <laughs> he did it as an activity, and he liked it. I can remember when he got his first check, and he did a show, and it messed up. my son was critically shocked. And so he started performing when he was still very critically shocked. He couldn't really look at you in the eye and talk to you. He was very, very shy. He did a show, and he got a check afterwards, and he, I, I saw him look back at the stage and look at the check and look at the stage. And then he's like, huh, <laughs> this is interesting. You make money doing this. It took, I think it took some time for it to be inside out for him. I never made him do it. I certainly apprised him of all his opportunities and booked it on a ton of shows, especially the Circus Harmony. He's a young person who did a lot of shows there. But I, uh, a couple of years ago, I asked Book, I said, Book, are you okay with the fact that I sort of, I didn't make you do this, but I sort of, you know, led you down this road a little bit. Are, are you okay that this is what you do? And he's like, oh, Pop, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, but I do have a question. And I'm like, uh-oh, Book, what's the question? He's like, why did you choose the hardest circus discipline? Why? And yeah, so yeah, juggling is so hard. It's so hard at a high level. Get to that high level and still be able to touch people with it. It's a juggling is a hard, hard theatrical presentation. It really is hard. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because obviously you can be a great juggler technically, but your act doesn't work as an entertainment or it can't work professionally. What do you think is the most important thing to add to an act? to kind of increase your ability to work professionally? Is it a, a theme, a premise? What do you add to the act to make it that exciting presentation? My answer is always the same to that, and that is you. You have, We have to find a way for you and your personality and your uniqueness because you're the, the superpower is you on stage. So we have to find a way. And so like Book as a young juggler, he did have this contortion ability. We created an act based on that, and people responded to it because it was different. But really, it was Book. So I say this all the time. You know, you go to circus school for three years to find out who you are <laughs> so you can present that on stage. And so that's a hard process. But really, it's the people who are sharing themselves. It could be through their interests. Sometimes I, uh, when I collaborate with young people and we create an act, I try to find their other interests. And we'll make an act around that. And we're kind of tying these two things together trying to find their personality in that. I, I can think of Kellen Quinn. Kellen was, was, was a great clown. So we created a cooking act, but it was really his joyful play. That's him. That's Kellen. That we integrated into that act and people responded to it so well. And then a few years later, he, and I remember that act, I you were there, but he went on stage with a box and played in front of the audience for like two and a half minutes and never juggled yet. The clock was ticking, and you only have eight minutes. And so that year, he actually went over on time, and he slid down from second place to no place. But he was having so much fun, and the audience was responding so well to the Kellen in those first two minutes with an empty box. They loved it, and he loved it, and he didn't care about 
the competition after that. Kellen goes by the Kellen now, by the way. That's his professional his professional name is the Kellen. The Kellen. That's good, like sort of like Mr. T. Kind of just yeah. a very singular kind of persona. Now what do you think about like the talkers versus the technicians? Do you have students who want to become comedy jugglers or do you mostly focus on those interested in more of a silent act? I don't focus, but for sure, uh, more of the silent is what evolves more and more. Talking's hard. Not everybody is as good a talker as you on stage. It is really hard. I think it's. I think if you can do it, it's great. But it's a hard thing. You really are opening yourself up up on stage. I haven't had any too many real talkers over all these years, to tell you the truth. Well, I look at your students. I look at like Zach and Delaney. And they both strike me as, I don't want to say introverted, but that I don't think they would be comfortable speaking on stage. Do I got that wrong? In acting class, it's circadian. They both do pretty well, and you do talk many times. Mm-hmm. But you're correct. I mean, in their natural state, they're, they're, they're not talkers on stage, for sure. Although Zach is very charming, and Delaney could be. Uh, but you're right. They're jugglers. I'm trying to think. There's a juggler named Stephen Dowd who goes to circadian. And he can, he can tell, he's a clown. He can talk on stage. He does it pretty well. But that's a harder thing. It's a rarer thing for sure. And what do you think about the professional opportunities for jugglers? When you look outside the IGA competitions and you're talking about goal setting, are there particular contracts or companies that you sort of set as goals for your students who are interested in becoming professionals? On one level, a job is a job. <laughs> I mean, for years, the goal was Cirque du Soleil. Right. Now the goal is more a company called Seven Fingers, a contemporary circus company that really highlights the performers as individuals more than Cirque does, for sure. And then there's a few other smaller companies happening. But yeah, it's going to be, nobody's going to get a job that they get to be in the same place for years and years and years. That's a rare job. So they all have to have their eyes open to the notion that you're going to travel and you're going to go to different places and you're going to do different shows. And there's some exceptions to that. I have a friend who was in the same Cirque show from the first day to the last day for 20 years. But yeah, Cirque was bought bought out and it's going to be different too. Yeah. You know, you're going to live a gypsy life. And the gypsy life is not traveling life, I should say. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But if you're going to be in this world, you better learn how to live that life. Let's talk about some of the tools you use as a coach. There's one I'm not really very familiar with. I think it was mostly used by golfers. You use something as an app called Coach's Eye. How does that work? Yeah, Coach's Eye, um, at Circus Harmony where I worked, the uh, gymnastics coach one day was holding his iPad up as each kid was doing a pass on a mini trampoline. And I'm like, are you taking pictures? He's like, no, I'm using Coach's Eye. And I'm like, what's that? And it's just an app that costs $5. And what it does, it, it films the sequence and it allows you to toggle frame by frame forwards and backwards. It allows you to draw lines on the student themselves. So I can draw a frame for their shoulders and say, look, all your balls are outside the frame of your shoulders. So the first time I really knew it was useful was I coached a boy named Ryan who all had two different heights. That's a big problem with five and higher is two different heights. And he, I, I must have said that to him 10,000 times. The left hand is thrown higher than the right hand. And then I filmed him on Coach's Eye, and then I showed him, and he got to watch himself. And this is what happened. I run the tape, and he goes, oh, my gosh, look, Richard, I have two different heights. It was like he had never heard me say that to him before he actually saw himself doing it. So one of the biggest reasons I like Coach's Eye is the, the, the client, the student, 
can actually look at themselves and see it from an outside eye. I mean, that's what I am. I'm an outside eye. I think all apps students should have an outside eye. But it's a powerful moment when they're under their own outside eye and they see something, especially something that you've been telling them for a long time. I think it was developed for swimmers and then golfers took it over. But it's great for juggling. It is terrific for juggling. Also, I like to document, Dan. So, like, I love in the first part of our time together to get some film of you. So three months later, we can look at the same five ball pattern and see the difference. Like, oh, look, your shoulders are relaxed and, and you're not moving your feet and your framing is so much better. And, and then even three months after that and three months later, you see such a difference and they can see such a difference. It's remarkable. Yeah, I, I do use that app pretty often. Now, what kind of tips do you have for people's patterns? Are there particular things that you see are problems over and over again? Like you're talking about juggling at different heights, you know, the right and left throws are higher. Do you also work with the student's posture? Is there particular postural things you think about when you're trying to improve someone's juggling? Yeah, I, I mostly not look at their pattern in the beginning. I look at their hands. I look at their level of arms. I look at their shoulders. Shoulders are always raised and tensed and caved in a little bit. Uh, how their, their feet should be framed up to their shoulders and straight out. And people stand with one foot in front and all these things. And really just a flat, squared up posture is what we're looking for. And we're looking for your shoulders to be really relaxed. Tony Pezzo has the most relaxed shoulders I've ever seen. All that means is that he's swimming from a low position and he's letting the objects go all the way up and come all the way down. And he's not raising his hands to meet them, even a little bit. And so you get extra time. Tony makes that work so well. Wes Pete also does it very well. Yeah, so we're looking at all that. Most jugglers, even pretty good jugglers, are throwing late. Because there's some micro moment in their brain where they're trying to track their previous throw to ensure that they're going to catch it. And a good juggler doesn't really do that. A good juggler's job is to throw the next throw. That little tiny difference can really mean a whole lot of difference in people's patterns. I can even, like, she'll laugh. I, I don't know her last name. That's terrible. There's a juggler named Lucy who was at this year's IJA. She's always a groundhog today. And I can tell in the recent past, she flipped it on his head, and now she's throwing, and she looks like a juggler. She looks like she's in control. She looks like, yeah, it's a natural thing. Almost everybody's throwing late, because especially beginning jugglers, when you first teach young jugglers, they do the popcorn juggler where they throw the ball, they track it all the way up, they let it come almost all the way down, and they pop off their next throw. That's what athletes do, too, because they're trained to track. And they, they can't believe they get to throw an object and not actually actively track it. But if you actively track, you will throw late every time. It might be a little late. It might be a lot late. But we don't throw late. Our job is to throw. Our job is, to, as I say to people, our job is to aim and throw. And we're actually trying to throw a really, really good throw. And I was saying, I say, there's no throw is perfect, so I make your next throw perfect. Because that's what we're doing. Every new throw, we're smoothing out our pattern. We're reconnecting, recorrecting our pattern. And we, we're doing that by aiming with our eyes. We're never just slogging a ball up in the air. We have to try as hard as we can with our eyes to give our hands information to make a very accurate throw. One of the challenges I always get when I teach a five-ball workshop is people are like, well, I just can't aim that accurately that high. Well, I'm like, well, of course not. You've been doing it for 10 minutes. Do this for two weeks. If you go, if you will do my five ball method for two weeks, you will flip the switch and you'll become a five ball juggler. Or you can stay low and say, I just can't do it. But you can do it. It just takes some practice and some time. Aiming high can be done, obviously. Let's talk a little bit about uh, in person. 
versus coaching long distance because your clients don't always have to come to you in person. And right now you're in uh, St. Louis. No, no, I live in Philly. Oh, you're you're in Philly, but you were working at uh, Circadian. No, you're from St. Louis, and then you moved to Philadelphia to yeah. work with uh, Circadian, and now you have a new a new place you teach out of. Is that correct? Yeah, I teach at the Circus Place in Hillsborough, New Jersey. It's a small program. I uh, I'm the head juggling coach. You might not know this. I'm a wire coach and a unicycle coach, and I get to do both of those there. And I, I love teaching wire so much. Really, one of my favorite favorite things. Yeah, so I'm I'm there. I spent my most, the bulk of my career, I, I lived in St. Louis my whole life. I was born in St. Louis. And I remember that I was leaving St. Louis. I worked at Circus Harmony, which is a very prominent youth program, social youth circus program. Uh, that's why I met Kellen. Kellen was the director's son. That's again, his son is Kellen Quinn in Killian. And for almost 12 years, 13 years, I coached Kellen every Wednesday. It was very traumatic when he went off to, to circus school and he was an adult and I no longer coached him. It was a big change in my life. Uh, but I talked there forever, thought I would teach there forever. And then I happened to find out about Circadian and talked to them, and then I moved to Philly. Worked to, I worked at Circadian for the first two years of the inaugural year. But then I wanted to do this thing and start this place, so now that's where I'm at. But uh, as far as this is, people will, uh, I give them homework, and then they make a take, and they put it on a private YouTube, and they give me the code. And then I watch the, once a week on their day. I watch their homework, and then I take notes on their homework. And then I give them new homework along with their notes. And one week later, on their day, they send me a, another tape. And I didn't know how that would work, but uh, it was suggested by a young student a long time ago. And it's really, really kind of nice because I can rewind their tape over and over and over again and really look and really tinker and really drill down, you know. By watching it over and over again. When you're in front of me, I see it one time. I mean, I see you with me, but, but uh, you know, so I, I usually watch their tapes two times without taking any notes just to get a general feel for how they're doing. And then I watch and take notes. And I can actually say, you know, at one minute and 21 seconds, look at your shoulder here, blah, blah, blah. I can also use that coach's app, by the way. You can send that. You can make notes on that, and it goes with the tape. When they're with me, in a, or if they can use the coaches app themselves and send me the tape. But most people just send me a, a video or phone on a YouTube channel. But it works very, very well. It's a great way to coach. And how do the students contact you? Um, do they need to contact you and send a, a video? How do they first make contact with you, Richard Kinnison, for you to be their juggling coach? Well, that happens a number of ways. People know me, and at the IGA convention, they'll come up and talk to me. But like I said, I don't immediately say yes. I, I, I do an assessment. I see where they're at. I see what their goal is. I, I, I wonder to myself, is this actually possible? Could they actually compete at the IJ if that's their goal? Could, and I want them to do well. Could they do well at the IJ and have a nice presentation and feel good about themselves? I certainly can't guarantee they'll win or even place, but I want them to have great experience. If I feel like they can have a great experience and they're motivated, uh, then we set up a year goal for the IJ specifically. I meet people, you know, I met, I met Zach McAllister at El Paso, started talking to him and just immediately figured out this is a very creative, Zach's the most creative drug I've ever met. Zach is Jay Gilligan. And so then we started talking about it. Delaney I met in an IJA, she was young. So it happens all kinds of different ways. I turn people down, that sounds so pompous, but if it's not a fit and it's not going to have a chance for success. Now, if they just want to, you know, get better at five clubs and they want to do that for three months, 
yeah, we'll go. I'll do that. It's on, you know, it's on them. They have to do the work. So yeah, it happens all different kinds of ways. I have about 12 students right now that are long distance, I think. And will you let a student go? Like, let's say someone is not practicing enough and you've made certain goals and commitments. Do you just say, look, you're just not satisfying me as a coach? Yeah, I have. There was a boy who I met at the IJA. Uh, actually, the year you were the fest director when I had my coach's corner or whatever it was called, mm-hmm. a boy came through there and then he really wanted me to coach him and I took him. And what happened was very interesting. That weekly tape commitment became like homework, like pressing to him. And mm. he said to me, I am having no fun juggling anymore. And I'm like, well, then we have to stop because juggling is so hard. And if you're not having fun and, and finding some level of joy in it, it's impossible. And so we did stop. And, and then the year after he was at the convention, and he was juggling at the storm. And he was like, listen, I'm happy juggling. It's great. I don't want to. <laughs> so that's right. You know, yeah, juggling is hard. Juggling is, I don't know what to say. I mean, the problem, and you, you know this, Dan, is when you juggle, everybody in the audience is an expert. Like when you're in a lira or in a trapeze, a stationary trapeze, unless you fall off the bar, the audience doesn't really read your mistakes. But you and I both know when the ball hits the ground, everyone's an expert. You're not that good of a juggler um, because the evidence is on the ground, and that's what defines juggling to a lay audience, of course. Um, that's why we have to find a context or a theme or a premise or some other kind of context to hang that juggling on so the dropping is not the crucial thing at all. So if you can talk and cover that with funny, that's great. If you're a silent act, it's a harder thing to cover. The cover's not the right word, but to um, to make it part of the act, and it's okay. I always tell my well, jugglers, let's, let's bury our first drop really deep after they love you. <laughs> well, Zach has a very interesting way of dealing with drops. I just watched, he had both his routines, his individuals and his teams. He put them up on Facebook, and I imagine they're also on YouTube. Yep. He has sort of a very uh, nonchalant, is that something you... Like when someone drops, how do you want them to react? Do you want them to react in a way that sort of negates the idea or that kind of doesn't draw attention to it? What do you suggest that they, how they handle their drops on stage? Well, for a beginning juggler, just pick it up, smile, and keep going. Right. Uh, because not, the audience is going to read your reaction. The importance of you slouch your shoulders and stop your foot and, oh, no. Well, the audience is like, wow, that was really important, and that's not good juggling. So, yeah, you just want to keep going. Zach has his own character on stage that pretty much sets a whole different world in a way. It's really a sweet, innocence, naivety that he plays on stage. It's very nice. There's sort of a romantic feel to it. I don't know. It's sort of like a, like sort of you think of him in like the lead in an old-fashioned romantic movie. Well, for sure. I get that kind of feel of it. For sure, the team act was that. Yeah. I love the end of Zach's act where he takes the one ring and it kind of hovers over his head back and forth. And then it kind of settles there. I love that moment. He makes that prop important. That's that's another one of my quirky things that I really don't like is when people throw their, their props off stage or off, Mm -hmm. you know, you imbibe these with these beautiful, magical, still set things. And then you treat them like trash. I cannot stand that. Now there's some justifications for a very specialized act, it's okay. But in general, these are special props. You shouldn't be throwing them off in the distance. Yeah. Well, I think of like Ivan Bissell, like he pulls the rings over his head and he throws his head back and they all go flying. It's a very aggressive kind of macho thing that, that can be effective. But I, 
I agree with you that the props are your special friends, yep. right? They have to be treated with respect and kind of a almost a devotion. That's exactly how I see it. Well, we're almost at the end. Let's end with a couple of sort of quick questions. Do you have a favorite juggler you like to watch? Maybe someone you haven't coached, but who you look at and saying, wow, that guy's form, that guy's technique is, is really exceptional, which you might use as a model for some of your students. Well, I like acts that lend other skill sets. So like Natasha Patterson, who's a contortion acrobatic juggler. I really liked her a lot. You know, in history, my favorite juggler is Alexander Kiss. You know, I like I love you know I love passion and mastery, Dan, and that could be knitting, that could be playing a violin. If somebody has passion and mastery, I'm all in <laughs> as an audience member or a coach. If we can show passion and some level of mastery, we're well on our way. If you have those two things, you also really set yourself apart from many other acts. I'm trying to think of another juggler. I say my favorite is probably uh, Peter Davison. I'm a big Peter Davison fan. Yeah, Peter Davidson is a dancer, juggler. He's great. He's bringing a different element to juggling, and I think that's really what everybody has to do today, especially. You have that's why I encourage people to take dance, take acting. You have to look good and you have to move well to to give it a a masterful look for sure. Now let's talk about the IGA competitions. We only had two junior competitors this year. If you could mention one or two things. What do you think we need to do to encourage more young people to enter and compete? I don't know what to say about that. I was shocked to find out there were two competitors. I had a third junior who was going to compete and pulled out at the very last minute for family issues. He would have taken second or third for sure. I'm shocked. I don't know. I don't know what is going on. I don't know if it was just the year, the location. I just don't know. I think a lot of people think about the competition and talk themselves out of it. You know, next year, of course, it's in, a, it's in a hard setting next year, but I could probably swing the other way. We'll probably have eight competitors. I think the same thing about teams. In fact, I, I put out, I've never done this. I don't know if you saw on my Facebook, Juggling Coach Richard. I actually put out a note and said, are there any teams looking for a coach who want to compete next year? So I love to coach another team, and they usually only have three or four competitors. I know for me, the IGA competition is important. It's, uh, it's a big goal, and it helps people get better. It helps me leverage kids to work towards a goal. I, I know some people don't like competition. And I, you know, I, I don't know. Well, how important was it for you to win the, the Excellence in Education Award from the IJ in 2017? Did that give you a sense of validation that the organization itself values you as a coach and your place in kind of encouraging young jugglers? Yeah, it was a great honor. And also, I also received the, I'm the recipient of the Bobby May Award too, which is a nice. coaching award. So both of those, the excellence in teaching, because I taught forever, taught, taught juggling to the masses and to tons of young people. So, I, yeah, I, I, both of those are very, very nice. You know, it's a weird thing to choose your career to be a juggling coach. So for the, <laughs> the primary organization to recognize that, that's, uh, that's a wonderful thing for sure. Let me ask you one final question. Now, I know you love juggling. But would you give it all away to become a professional pinball player? <laughs> I do I play pinball. I do play a lot of pinball. I have won money playing pinball. I play in tournaments and leagues. What's really nice about pinball is very much like juggling. It's unlike a video game. Pinball is actual physics. There's a heavy ball rolling down that play field at an angle, and there's actual physics happening. It's exactly like juggling. I compete against much younger people than me. 
who have young eyes and I have old eyes. But what's happening on that play field is just para, uh, parabolas. The ball gets thrown in a parabola. And I, I really can anticipate where the ball is going to go. And a lot of younger people are still, like, reacting to where the ball went, and it's too late. Pinball is, is a hard, hard thing. I really love it. I just played last night. Because there's a combination of skills, what we call flipper skills. So the ball's on my left flipper, but the shot I want to make is a right flipper shot. Well, there's probably about 12 different ways I can transfer that ball from my left flipper to my right flipper. And then I can make the shot, the spinner shot or the hole or whatever. But pretty much at the level I'm at, we all have pretty equal flipper skills. But then the real thing is every game has a rule set. And so you have to learn the rule set to have a real chance. What I mean by that is you, you have to know how to increase your bonus and how to go get the big secret score that beginners don't even know. Almost all the new machines, when you pull a plunger for the first time, there's a secret plunger shot. If you don't know that, You'll, you'll pull a plunger and you'll make 200000 I'll pull a plunger and I'll start with $2 million, you know, because I know where to do that at. Pimple is very popular at the IGA this year. There was a group of us, including the passing zone. We went off to a very nice pinball place. Uh, Marcus Perry organized it. He's a pinball guy, too. And uh, a very nice place. Had about 75 machines, really well kept. And we all played for about two hours. It was so much fun. Yeah, we had a lot of new activities at this festival. Uh, we just got back from the IJ last month, and we had a game show night and a film festival night. But the one thing that was missing was the pinball tournament, the IGA pinball tournament. And hopefully we can rectify that in, in future years. We're going to work on that for sure. Because I still have to challenge you. I'm, I, I don't know if I have your skills, but I always was a pinball fanatic as a younger man. And I look forward to the day where you and I can go head to head in a little pinball challenge. Well, I have taken a number of jugglers, including Tony Pezzo, and I'm trying to think who else. And within an hour or so, they become pretty good pinball players because their juggling skills really do relate to playing pinball. Uh, tracking a ball, catching the ball, it's all in pinball. I'm surprised in the history of pinball, there's no game back in the days when they made mostly non-licensed games where they just invented their own themes. I'm so surprised there was not a game called The Juggler. Well, they do have a lot of games that have the multi-ball feature. And that always struck me as a very juggling-like activity when there's three balls going at the same time. Yep, it's so much fun. I actually, there's a number of machines that have the two-ball multi-ball, and I really like that. It's, it's not too overwhelming, and you can really cradle one and do a lot of damage with the other one, and then that one drains, and you still have the one cradled. Uh, mm. There's a Apollo 13, the, the pinball game. It actually has a multi-ball with 13 balls. That seems a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> when they all come down to play school, you're like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Must be fun, but I like, like I say, like two or three sounds good to me. Hey, I don't want to put you on the spot, but we're at the very end. If someone asked you to sum up your coaching philosophy in just like a little elevator speech, like a little 10-second, 15-second speech, how would you sum up Richard Kennison's philosophy as a juggling coach? Well, I like to think of it this way. I help people bloom. So I don't have people do the same act. I don't have them do the same moves. I, I am very collaborative, and it's, I want them to be part of the process, the important part of the process. They're the ones on stage. But I help people bloom. So I believe in people long before they believe in themselves, totally. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of young jugglers, uh, especially when you go to the IJA. I took a lot of jugglers this year who I coach. It was their first IJA. 
And you know this moment, uh, you probably didn't experience this moment, but when you walk in the gym and, and you're like, oh, I'm an imposter. I should not be part of this organization. And then about 45 minutes later, it flips on the set and you're all inspired. So I, I, I think one of the things I do very well is help inspire my young jugglers, especially, to keep doing it and keep believing in themselves. But when people ask me what I do, I tell people I help people bloom. I help them find themselves and bloom into themselves. So they are very confident to be on stage and share their selves with that audience. Well, I want to end by saying I fully support your role as a juggling coach. I think it's something that I wish uh, the community would take more at heart and understand the importance of coaching in not only improving their technical juggling, but also as they prepare for having professional careers as a juggler. I hope you've inspired people through this podcast to contact you for your juggling services. And I want to thank you, Richard, for the time to be on the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks a lot to Mr. Richard Kennison. Thanks, Richard. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 72, my conversation with professional juggling coach Richard Kinnison. Before you go, check out juggle.org for information about the IJA, International Jugglers Association. This great group of jugglers has an annual festival and many products you might enjoy to improve your juggling skills. Now, go out there and drop everything except when you're juggling.